Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com slash college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lithcott-Hames, and today we'll talk about a bold new call for sweeping changes to the admissions process, and we'll answer more listener questions. Joining me today is getting an expert, Steve Lemenager. Steve is the president of Advice, a college counseling firm, and he's a former director of admissions at Princeton University. Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Julie. How are you? I'm great. And I think I'm really feeling great because of this bold, new, hot-off-the-presses report this week that's just come from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It's called Turning the Tide, Inspiring Concern for Others and the Common Good Through College Admissions. And I've got to say, I devoured it. It's a pretty exciting read. It's left me incredibly hopeful that some radical and much-needed change to the admissions process is actually in the works. The kind of changes we've already been talking about here on this podcast. And listeners, there's a link to this report in the show description and on our Twitter feed. So check it out. Steve, this Harvard report, endorsed by over 80 prominent leaders in college admissions, makes three main recommendations for reshaping the admissions process. It wants to see authentic community engagement from applicants, not sort of check-the-box community service. It wants to halt the snowballing pressures to achieve and succeed, like overloading AP classes and seeking ever higher test scores. And it wants to level the playing field for economically disadvantaged students, There's so much to discuss here, Steve, but can you call out one element or recommendation that struck you as an especially worthy goal? Well, Julie, as you said, there's lots to recommend the report, um, kind of as a tonic for what ails the admission process today. What it does give the college admission folks permission to do is to use these important values, which um, clearly they, they find lacking in the selection process today and in a sense gives them ammunition to make the changes that they want to make in the same vein. So for me, what struck me as particularly important among all the recommendations is for students to become genuinely, authentically engaged in their communities. This goes far beyond the college admission process itself. It's really about how we share responsibility for our communities and how important it is to urge young people today to hold up their end of the bargain. They mention in the report that you want to engage with your local community, and I think that's very important. Although they don't specify that particularly, they they do imply it, and I think that's very important. Um, And somehow to avoid the more exotic excursions to satisfy those community service requirements, that ticking off the box that you mentioned. So that's what struck me the most as I read through this set of recommendations. Fabulous. Yeah, you know, when I'm out on the road uh, related to my book tour for How to Raise an Adult, I'm describing the extent to which childhood has become a construct that I call the checklisted childhood, which is the right schools and not just the right schools, but the right classes in the right schools and the right grades in the right classes at the right school and all the tutoring and coaching designed to ensure the right grades are gotten, and not just the grades, but the scores and all the hours of test prep that go into getting these scores, and not just the scores and the grades, but the accolades and the awards and the sports and the activities and the (laughs) leadership. And then finally, I say, 
and the community service. Check a box to show them that you care about others, preferably very far away. And so I really resonated with that part of the of the report that spoke to that fact and the fact that one not need have some exotic plunge into a community in the name of community service and that 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 in fact may not be a terribly meaningful engagement. So I was delighted to see them kind of pulling back on that whole piece of this, uh, which in some communities is rather out of control. I've actually given a couple book talks this week, as it so happens, and I've mentioned this wonderful report, and people have burst into applause. So picture an audience of, you know, a couple hundred parents, and they burst into applause when I have said two things about this report. One, that it recommends uh, sort of a cap or limiting the number of AP courses a student should be encouraged to take. They burst into applause. And then the second place is where I mentioned the de-emphasis on standardized test scores, on perhaps making standardized testing optional. And when a community of people bursts into applause, you know, I know that that's struck a nerve or struck a chord. Let me frame this just a little bit more clearly so our listeners understand This is a report from a set of scholars with the endorsement of a number of folks in college admission. It is not an organization that can require anybody to do anything, but the implicit presumption is with all of these schools that are influential and well-regarded and considered prestigious on board with this, that just maybe now they'll go back to their admissions teams at their college with the buy-in and support of the leadership of their college or university and implement these changes. That's the hope. Steve, what are you skeptical about? Is there anything you'd be surprised to see admissions officers and offices actually be able to tackle or embrace? You know, I'm I'm a relatively skeptical guy. So I, (laughs) having been through lots of experiences in college admission. But I I am also hopeful that this report will help to turn the tide, as they say. I guess one one source of skepticism has to do with how will admission offices actually measure the level of community engagement or community service? Um, It's one thing to say that it's important, and it's another another to, to measure it and somehow use it as evidence in the deliberations when you're you're making uh, admission decisions. So I have no, I don't have skepticism about the basic ideas or values of the report. In fact, I think it, it's it is a breath of fresh air and I think it's it's well needed in this this process which has become so ratcheted up and and um anxiety driven and stressful. Um however, there there's going to have to be some kind of um measure for that particular aspect of the process, like we have, you know, SAT, ACT for um, standardized testing. We have a transcript for grades, um, and we have recommendations from teachers on other aspects. Perhaps it's going to put more emphasis on recommendations or maybe another recommendation letter that pertains directly to uh, the community engagement or service aspect of a student's application. So that's the part that that makes me wonder, how are they going to do that? Yeah, digging into the report a bit, into the weeds of it, I saw somewhere they've got a suggested manner for implementing that piece, which indicates that on the community service side that 
a letter of recommendation could come from somebody the student works with in that community service context or even a peer. And they listed a whole set of folks who might be suitable recommendation writers uh, to speak to that piece. So I think, you know, that's that's getting at that very concern, how to how to implement, how to track it, how to measure it meaningfully that you've raised. So do college counselors and independent counselors all of a sudden seize this report and start advising kids differently? I mean, this <laughs> report has landed in January of 2016. What does this mean for the present tense? Well, I think it it means nothing for the students um, who are seniors. It really doesn't because this is really a what I view it as a planning document for the future. So if you're um will it help my will it help my son he's a junior <laughs> he's a junior facing this new SAT you know he's a junior this class my goodness i mean is it going to should should he care about what's in this report or is that premature that that's a great question i think um you you're coming at this from a couple of different angles right a, a parent and a, an observer an essayist a a speaker <laughs> a, a, an author so if it's the mom in me that really wants to know the answer, Steve. <laughs> as, as I think of how the colleges will implement this, um, I think you're going to have a, a varied degree of adoption as you go forward. So I think it will depend on which, which colleges and universities take this the most seriously and, and implement it into their admission processes. But I think it's going to be relevant in, for, for juniors for current juniors and and then than those who are younger than they. So th- those 80 folks who have signed on are are truly the leaders in this field and not just college folks but there there are some college presidents there there's there are deans and vice presidents but there are also college counselors at a variety of schools and and others who who have a strong interest in this process. So I think it's it's going to be taken seriously, and and there will be many many conversations across the country at various colleges and universities about what to do with this. And again, as I said, it's a breath of fresh air. It gives them permission, ammunition to make changes that perhaps they were, would have been gun shy to do unilaterally. So I think it's a I think it's a good thing. Well, it's absolutely right. I mean, I've been you know. When people say to me, aren't we just over-parenting because we're doing what we have to do to get our kids into the right college? It's it's a wonderful, meaty question, and I enjoy responding to it. But one of the things I say is, you know, yeah, the admissions process needs to change, and and maybe the most influential voices in that profession will figure out a way to come together and make meaningful change. And in the meantime, I go on to say, we've got kids to raise, you know, kids who are needing dinner tonight and breakfast tomorrow, and we've got to raise them in the present tense, in the context of the now and with the challenges that exist um, in front of us. What I love about this report is, you know, these are the big boys basically saying things need to change. And um, it seems what they're saying is we can evaluate hard work in at the level of high school. We can evaluate rigor. We can evaluate achievement differently than we have been doing. And I think at the heart of this report is a recognition that all of this emphasis on the best grades and the best scores and community service and leadership and activities and awards and all that makes the student feel it's all about them and that their achievement, the extent of it, is the be-all and end-all 
of their childhood, that that should be the goal. And this report is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the right direction in which to steer our nation's young people. They need to care about others. They need to look around and see problems that persist and ask, how can I be of use in my community? You know, how can I engage my effort, my intellect toward bettering the human condition? And I love that it's this very subtle and yet very clear pivot away from it's all about you and your grades and scores to who are you in the world and who do you aim to be with respect to others and the needs of others. It's about citizenship. It's about community. And I think it'll help young people feel what I choose to do, the things I care about, the efforts I make are in furtherance of bettering the world around me and make me feel good about my contribution. And all of that is so much more meaningful than a particular score from a particular test. And I am so, so hopeful that if this report has the kind of weight that I think it ought to, and schools really do adopt these recommendations, that young people in maybe four to five years, if things have really changed, will no longer feel that they're worth as humans as their grades and scores. That would be a triumph of our time. And here's me in Palo Alto, California, with my fists raised in excited delight over that possibility. I'm excited, too. And, and you know, the litany of things you said before about all the things that go into this process, you know, the scores and the grades and so forth. And then at the end, you said, and then there's community service. Well, what this report does is just, it just turns it around completely. It says, you should worry first about your community, about your family, about um, the things that are important to you as a human being. I know I'm repeating a lot of what you're saying, but that's a great message to send to young people that it's not all about the grades and the scores and the pressures and the achievements that have been um, given from on high that you need to do. Um, this changes the game. Yeah. Changes the game. It really does. It also puts a very front face on the fact that most kids are not from privileged backgrounds where somebody is helping them have some exotic community service opportunity. Most kids are middle class or working class, and they're confronted with a different reality about what kinds of things are possible outside of the school day. Many kids in our nation need to work, hold a job to contribute to the running of the family, need to help out need to the to attend to the needs of family and extended family and this report speaks explicitly to that experience and invites kids in those communities to talk about those things and to regard those kinds of contributions to family, to extended family, and to their broader community as just as valuable in this concept of service to others as some kind of community service week away in some developing country that the more well-heeled folks uh, in our nation might be setting up by way of a community service opportunity for their kids. So it's really this this notion of, you know, how do we evaluate all kids within the context of their community, their family circumstance, and so on? I think this report is speaking rather beautifully both to the disparity and to the obligation to give all kids a chance to demonstrate who they are. Agreed. And it also is a hint as to where the colleges are coming from. Where do they want their future students to come from? Absolutely. 
yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful message. And now we get to the harder part, the implementation. How do you do it well such that you're actually attracting the, the students whom you want to attract to, to your particular colleges? And that's it's an important task and, and, a, and a wonderful task. And I'm, I'm glad that they've opened the window, if you will, to, this, to these sets of issues for this process. As am I. Open the window. Beautiful way of putting it. Breath of fresh air, clearer view. Yeah, I'm excited about, I don't know, 2020, 2021, whatever year we will um, feel is the year in which the nation has embraced this change. I just have a sense it's going to happen. I think this report is turning the tide, beautifully named, aptly named. Bravo, bravo to those who put their hearts and minds into this process. If you're listening, I, for one, as a former college dean and more importantly, as a parent, I thank you. How about we turn away from the ideal of a brighter future to the present, our listener questions. The first one is actually a comment. It's from Tommy Jameson, and he's a Navy vet and currently a Ph.D. student at Harvard. He wrote us and sent us a voice memo. He writes, The Navy helped pay for my undergrad at Grinnell, and I would be curious to hear how ROTC might factor into the application process. And now this is Julie adding, Grinnell, by the way, for those who don't know, is a fabulous small liberal arts college in Iowa. Hi, guys. I love the program, and I'm genuinely rooting for all the students involved. It seems like a great number of the callers are concerned with the affordability of a U.S. education. And with that in mind, I wonder if it might be worth discussing the ROTC program and the U.S. GI Bill. Several generations of U.S. students have used those programs to access educations that might otherwise be out of reach. Uh, it worked for three generations of my family, and I think it might be of use to some of your listeners. Thanks again. All the best. Tommy, thank you for that wonderful question. Steve, what do you know about ROTC and the U.S. GI Bill? ROTC scholarships at U.S. colleges are, are a great way for for some students who are interested in the military to to have part of their education funded or even the entire undergraduate tuition funded. So you you are you should be willing as someone interested in ROTC to um, to make the commitment of usually four years of active duty and then perhaps as many as four years of reserve duty beyond uh, your active duty in a particular branch of of the military that you choose. So so students um, who are interested in the military, this is a wonderful way to have. Um, a good part of your undergraduate education covered. You also need to be willing to spend the time on the campus to take the, the appropriate courses and be trained uh, within the, the ROTC program at the, at the particular colleges that, that you're interested in. Now, not all colleges will have all of the various branches of the military, um, so you need to do some digging and check, check out the um, number of websites where you can find which colleges have which ROTC program. There's Army, uh, Navy, and Marines is one, and then Air Force. It's certainly a fabulous option for those for whom it aligns with their sense of self in the future in terms of career, their values, and so on. It's um, uh, I've known so many students who've, who've gone through that, the ROTC program. Um, you know, there was a time in our nation when colleges and universities weren't terribly embracing of ROTC coming out of the Vietnam era. And um, I think the relationship, it's fair to say, between those 
involved in the military and those involved in academia wasn't always close. I remember when Stanford brought the ROTC back to campus. It was rather recently. Our students were always able to participate in ROTC at a university near us. But Stanford now is one of those places where you can be ROTC and actually experience that curriculum and with that guidance from the leadership of ROTC on the Stanford campus. Times have changed, and I I think in a good way. So for those considering it, absolutely. Um, And those who don't know about it but uh, think a career as an officer in uh, our nation's military, if you're finding that as an appealing possibility, look into ROTC. Great way to get uh, your college education partially paid for and great opportunities set up for yourself in the future. All right, up next, we've got a voice memo from a mother in Florida. Hello, my name is Stephanie and I'm calling from Miami, Florida. I have an 11th grade son and he's a person of diverse talents and interests. He's on the calculus team and he really loves physics and he's a good writer and is very stimulated by his social science courses. He also plays for instruments and is taking a couple of different languages as part of his high school career. My question to you is what is your advice concerning the kinds of institutions that would be interested in a student like this? What kinds of programs might they have to help my son integrate his interests? And also, how can he best portray the strengths of being a person that's into a lot of different things without coming off as sounding unfocused or like he's bragging? Thanks. Stephanie, thanks for that question. Steve, even though you haven't met Stephanie's son, as you hear her describe him, are there specific colleges you can think of that might fit this description? Well, it's really it's really hard to say, uh, having not met her. Um, However, I will say that, you know, the way she describes her son, who wouldn't be interested in him, honestly, he sounds wonderful. Um, But I would say that for, for those who are not sure what they specifically want to do in life yet, and they're still exploring a number of different options, I would strongly recommend the small liberal arts colleges. We have a a number around the country that are just magnificent. You know, earlier, the um, the gentleman, Tommy, who, who asked about ROTC, um, he, he received a, a scholarship to Grinnell, a, a great example of, of that kind of college. So, yeah, there's a whole swath of colleges out there that would fit and, and would give uh, Stephanie's son the opportunity to explore and discover um, what, what he's all about and then finally decide on a concentration or major. I'm not sure, you know, part of her question was how can he integrate all of his interests? I'm not sure he, that should be a goal necessarily. He's not going to be able to do all these things in life um, and, and to do them at, at, a, at a high level. So it's, I, w- I would therefore encourage uh, an undergraduate curriculum, the bachelor's degree, where the requirements may give him flexibility to to go across a number of dif- different disciplines. So whether it's an open curriculum or one with with fairly uh, manageable distribution requirements, that would give him the chance to further explore and to to figure out what what his calling is and what his passion is. Yeah. You know, I'm going to add, most kids aren't sure what they want to do in life when they're 17. 
I think. We've kind of manufactured an expectation that they should, you know, find your passion and preferably by the fall of your senior year so you can tell colleges about it. But the reality is that most of us, I think, blossom intellectually later in life because we've had access to courses and opportunities in our teens and 20s, college, maybe even grad school, the workplace. And um, so, yeah, some kids are going to apply to college knowing, you know, I am a biologist. I intend to become that, you know, and they should apply to a place with a strong biology program. But Stephanie's son, my goodness, calculus, physics, writes well, social sciences, languages, instruments. Wow. Okay. He should not apply to a place that requires him to declare his intended major up front. He would, I think, end up down a path that may not turn out to be the right one for him. It's too soon to ask this kid to decide who he is. Fortunately, many, many schools, particularly those liberal arts colleges you reference, will embrace applicants who say, that they're undeclared or undecided, who have a myriad of interests and who aren't yet ready to start narrowing down and focusing in. So a lot of great options and opportunities for this kid, I'm sure. And the one thing I'd add about how to write about it or how to speak to it in the college application process is resist the impulse to tell them everything Everything will sort of come through somehow. You'll list this as your activities. You'll refer to this in an essay. But there should be a through line. There should be some way for this kid to describe his myriad interests in an essay that ends up narrating to who he is as a person. That's, I think, the important thing. Um, Be able to think about the why behind these myriad interests. Um, rather than to sort of present them somehow as, as you said, an amalgamation or an accumulation of a whole lot of different things. I think as he writes about himself, talk talk about delving into one or maybe two things in, in a way that, that lets the reader know why it is that those things are, are intriguing or fascinating to you, rather than a, a you know, a a recreation of your resume, which um, which would be ultimately very boring to read. But but we talk more about why it is. What's the joy in the things that you do that you can share with us? That to me, that's how I would present it, as opposed to a, a laundry list of of all the varied interests and and uh, talents that he has. To Stephanie's point or concern about not coming off as bragging. What would you say to an applicant like this kid, if you were his college counselor, about how to not sound braggy? I mean, this gets to language use. It's the verbs. It's it's the it's the sentences. How does how does a kid like this not come across as bragging? Yeah. The, um, or is bragging okay? No, bragging. No, bragging's not okay. <laughs> they aren't the kind of human qualities that I think the report that we talked about was was harping on. You know, we're talking about caring for others and and kind of an other oriented aspect to your life, as opposed to an an inner selfish aspect that that just focuses on your accomplishments. I think you can talk about your interest in a variety of things without having it all reflect upon your achievement. And if you if you go through and talk about your achievements and and celebrating those coming from your own voice, that does sound like bragging because that's exactly what it is. Let other people brag on you. Let let your teachers brag on you. Let others who 
who know you and recommend you do that, that should not be part of your self-presentation. From my perspective, it should not be part of your self-presentation because what what Stephanie and her son may not realize is that there are thousands of students like him who will be applying to these same schools. And, and those who do brag are those who are easy to, to knock out of the process because the, the, the readers kind of shrug their shoulders and say, we're not sure that we want him here. <laughs> and, and so if, if you're giving a glimpse of what you're like as a person in your, in your writings, in your essay, and that's what comes across, I, I think you may be missing the boat. That's great, Steve. Thanks so much for that and for joining me today. It's been lovely having you on the podcast. It's always fun, Julie. Thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners for your excellent questions. You listeners are, of course, the reason we're doing this. And there are lots of ways you can send us your questions and comments and really get in on the conversation. We're on Twitter, at GettingInPod. That's all one word, GettingInPod. You can send an email or voice memo to our email address. That's gettingin at slate.com. And there's always our hotline where you can leave a message. That number is 929-999-4353. And please, please, please leave us a comment on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our wonderful producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer, and Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lifgott-Haynes. And remember, it's not just about getting in. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, on iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book you might try out from Audible is The Secrets of Happy Families by Bruce Feiler. Feiler set out on a three-year journey to find the smartest solutions and the most cutting-edge research about families, then tested the methods on his wife and kids. The results are fun and original. If you want to listen to The Secrets of Happy Families or many other books, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com college and use the promo code COLLEGE.